As you know, the On Farm podcast is brought to you by the team at Seen and Heard PR and Marketing. And I just wanted to remind you about a new initiative that's happening here called On Record. On Record is a project to preserve voices, stories and memories for the future with your very own audio recording. So we're recording memories of rural life. We're travelling around Scotland, working with families and organisations to capture precious voices of family members or staff members or long-serving office bearers to preserve those for posterity and sometimes for historical value. So if you think this project is something that you'd like to be involved in and maybe you have a grandparent or a parent that you'd like to capture on audio while you can, please do get in touch. You can find out more at onrecordmemories.co.uk. Actually, i tell you where we can get out the wind on the other side of this shed. Right. And still be in the sunshine. See all these piles of wood. Ah, a year ago. Yes, right, no. Do you remember? Fine, let's have a chat about that. Let's have yeah, a chat okay. about that. Are you recording, Dave? I am. Hello, welcome to this episode of On Farm. We are at Peelham Farm near Fulden, near Berwick. We're probably it's just a skip over the, the border back into Scotland. And we're with uh, a great friend of mine. We're with Denise, and I'll get Denise to, to introduce herself more fully in a second or two. But we're standing here at Peelham, and we're just having a look around. And we're standing beside a wind turbine. You can maybe hear it in the background. We're standing in a field with um, some piles of brash wood and, and logs. And we're here because um, we're here to talk about COP27... We're also going to look back a little bit on COP26. But just in my mind, as soon as I look around here and I see the, the wind turbine and I see the piles of wood, it reminds me that we're, we're only... This episode will go live um, just about a week before the anniversary of Storm Arwen. And it really impacted heavily on this part of the world. There's some big beech trees, skeletons of big beech trees lying down there. Um, big trees. And it just makes me think about that. And I suppose we've probably come to the right place to chat about climate change and the, and the impacts. Denise? Uh, absolutely. Well, I mean, thank you for coming. And it's great to see you, Monty, after all these years. We're all a bit greyer and more wrinkly. But anyway, better for I'm it. I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I am not going to say anything. We're better for it. We're wiser, I think. We're wiser, right. Um, to Peelham Farm, uh, South East Berwickshire, we're about, as a crow fa- flies, five or six miles from the border with Northumberland and England, um, a bit longer by road. The farm is at about, at the highest point is about 700 feet, goes down to 200 feet, two miles from the Berwickshire coast. Uh, very, very windy, very beautiful, got amazing views. Um, mixed farm. Uh, well, mostly we're, we're primarily a beef farm with some sheep and pigs. Uh, we don't do arable anymore, apart from a little bit of forage for our cattle. And we're organic and pasture for life as well, sort of certified and audited. And nature-friendly um, network. Is, yes, yeah, nature-friendly. the sign on the end of the shed there. Yeah, so we're, we're members of the Nature-Friendly Farming Network and I've currently taken on the chair of the Scottish NFFN, which is very exciting, especially where we are with um, the potential for farming to address issues of climate and biodiversity. But yes, your reference to Storm Arwen, what we're looking at in front of us, used this time a year ago was a thick, mature plantation mixed woodland, and now it's nothing. It's just piles of piles of brash and cut logs. And that night, in about the space of four or five hours, we lost between 800 and 1,000 trees. You've no idea. The wind just literally, well, not that we were in the middle of them, but it just snapped the heads off these mature beach. We woke up in the morning realising, my God, you know, that climate change is very powerful. That wind was very, very powerful. Um, we had a couple of, well, we had cattle actually sheltering in the trees, believe it or not, because we have our cows out as much as possible. And we, one was, an in-calf cow was killed by a falling tree. All right. Um, and a couple of injuries. But, you know, it was just astonishing. So, this, you know, our, our landmark has changed 
the farm character has changed. It sounds different. The sounds are different. The wind plays differently. Um, all the familiar landmarks that have been our landmarks for 30 years, it's just gone. You've been on a journey to try and uh, mitigate the farm's impact of, on the environment and on the climate, etc., for, for some time. Does it make you more vociferously want to do that when you see this? It's, 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 it's very real now. Well, yeah, it does. I mean, I suppose, I mean, my background is as an ecologist. So there we've been farming for, well, actually more than 30 years now. And my whole kind of vision was that farming can and should be much more nature-friendly and farms have got this potential for, to really support biodiversity. I never really imagined how powerful climate change was. I suppose we've always thought of it that you know it's an issue with the global south, but that night it really hit home very hard. It's not so much more vociferous, but much more um, convinced of the urgency of the situation that we're in. Uh, you know, these heavy storms are climate change yeah. happening up yeah, here happening. on our farms. Yeah around us and of course we had the drought during the summertime that was also climate change and it was just quite extraordinary uh, you know I actually <clears throat> took out a, a temperature probe onto a stubble field on a farm neighboring us and the Saturday morning in the middle of the drought the stubble on bare earth was 33 degrees in the ground on in the ground and so I then brought the probe up, and this wasn't to kind of demonstrate a point, or it's not about halo polishing. I thought, well, actually, let's just see what grass and vegetation are doing. So I actually temperature probed through thick grass, and it was 21 degrees. So suddenly we've got this very clear difference. But anyway, I mean, uh, climate change. And actually, that example demonstrates what farms can do to mitigate heat and climate on a local scale. But, but going back... Um actually before Storm Arwen last year because we're, 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 this episode is going out um, just at the end of COP27 so yeah. COP26 Glasgow last year um, you, you, you were along as a, as a delegate was, yeah. yeah well not as a delegate but certainly um, involved in a number of fringe events yeah. really to talk about niche friendly farming and also to talk about localising food chains and in, t- and in fact to one event um, to maybe demonstrate a point, which is the value of livestock on farms to biodiversity and, yes, climate change, I actually took a cowpat from the farm underneath a cheese cloche in an IKEA bag on the train <laughs> from Berwick to Glasgow to demonstrate the value of dung as part of a functioning eco- ecosystem. Um, and that particular event, it was really making the point that unless you bring a function back to our landscapes and as farmers we can do that to the areas that we farm we're not going to do things like cycle carbon or cycle nitrogen properly and effectively so the most important thing there is organic matter and hey guess what produces the most amazing organic matter but cows that graze walk organic matter into the ground and then poo on the ground. But what is important, and this is an issue that we have to address as farmers, that the poo has to not have anthelmintic residual mm-hmm. chemicals because we need to encourage all the brilliant invertebrates that bring all the organic matter into the soil and also incidentally feed our iconic birds like curlew. Curlew, are, who you, curlew used to be regular um, visitors to all of our farms. They are now critically endangered. Primarily, and you know, I'm a farmer, but because of farming, we need to address it. That, that's one thing that you touch on there about the anthelmintics. That's the, the, the key active chemical in the, the, the wormers that we use for uh, livestock, sheep and cattle in particular. We are all, a, what's the word I'm looking for? probably lectured probably taught you know the vets we, we've done some work with Morden on the podcast and we're taught about the importance 
or, or it's, it's, it's rammed home to us the importance of cutting anthelmintic use. But it's usually brought about, it's usually talked about because of the issues around resistance. So that means, you know, if we overuse the, the, the same chemicals all the time, then actually they, they lose their effectiveness because the worms become resistant and they're no longer effective. But Denise is bringing a different angle to that, which is about the actual what's in the cowpat and what's left in the cowpat to feed the soil and to feed the, the birds, basically. Yeah, it's very significant because actually the, the, the humble cowpat, once it's deposited on the ground, and incidentally, this is another key, this is quite an ecological concept, deposited on the ground onto grass that the cow is also eating. So you get this, this cycle, the cow's grazing, poos on the grass that it's grazing. Um, but as the cow pat dries, it presents different habitat structures for different invertebrates. Um, so, you know, when it's sort of, you know, wet and it's a little bit soft, you start getting invasion by dung beetles. Dung beetles are brilliant. You know, they draw organic matter sometimes two metres below the soil surface, both vertically down and horizontally. You then get other different um, suites, if you like, of invertebrates, which are through the life cycle or through the, the, the length of the, the life of the dung pat will be fed on by swallows the invertebrates that actually feed on the dung will be fed on by curlews in fact we just heard one in, in the background just there um, as they poke their wonderful beaks down through the dung and take up the earthworms and the um, the beetles underneath the dung pads but also really important for bats and a whole suite of birds the horseshoe bat, for example, okay, we don't have them up here in Berwickshire, but they are a, a critically endangered a red data book species. Um, during their period of lactation, they depend on cockchafers, which depend on dung. So if they don't have those bugs to eat while they are lactating their young, their young don't survive. So I mean, that's a wonderful example of the intricacies of evolution that we are rediscovering, or he's discovering for new. I'm really interested in this from a, you know, we're talking about COP27 here, we're talking about the wider climate change debate. It's levelled at farmers all the time that livestock are a key driver of climate change. Well, I mean, globally, livestock are a key contributor to climate change, not least the, the deforestation of the Amazon for more grass, for more soya growing. The large-scale production, industrial factory production of livestock is a key factor in climate. And also there is a very big moral issue in that you know, animals are subjected to some absolutely appalling conditions when they're industrially produced. And we, have to, we absolutely have got to address all of that. But where we are here in... Isles, where we actually have a very forgiving climate and forgiving soils, we can work with our livestock to actually counter issues of climate. So where I am personally is, um, and where we are on this farm, is we we don't use agrochemicals, and that's a key issue. Uh, we don't buy in grain to feed our cattle, and that is another issue. So the productivity of this farm is dependent entirely on what this farm produces naturally, on, if you like, the free assets of sunshine and water and soil. So there is a very strongly um, positive impact on biodiversity. There is evidently, but we certainly as a business need to do more work on this positive impact for carbon as well. Just recently, we learned that the world had passed a population of 8 billion people. Now, it's brilliant what, what you're doing. It's brilliant what we can do he here in Scotland, in the British Isles. But we're never going to feed 8 billion people, are we? Well, yes, we are, and we can, for two reasons. First of all, the, the global food system has got to address waste. We are wasting too much. If we're wasting between 30-40% of the food that goes into our mouths, what's happening to it, where's it going, if actually we were much more expedient about what we grew and how we ate it and processed it, then we would be feeding more. 
The other issue is food and agriculture, the FAO of the United Nations, they estimate that we're growing about two and a half billion tonnes of cereals a year globally. It's widely acknowledged that we probably need, um, what, three tonnes per person of cereals in terms of calorie intake. Well, you know, just a simple multiplication, that 7.5 billion people fed on the cereals that we are already growing, and that's just cereals. So we're not including um, the pulses or the vegetables or the meat or dairy. So, hey, presto, we've actually, we're growing probably double what we need for the current world population. So if we address the waste factor and distribution, then we are feeding the planet. And actually at least 60% of um, food poverty globally is because of geopolitical tensions. I mean, look what Ukraine has done. You know, look what's happening in, in sort of northern parts of Africa. So we absolutely can and should feed our populations based on the natural assets of our farms and working with nature. And also, we do know that, um, you know, if you look at global cereal yields, they've been flatlining for years. They continue to flatline. Why? Well, because we're degrading our soils. So if we start improving the biodiversity of our soils and start looking at soil organic matter, then we start increasing productivity and long-term productivity. I, I I think you touch on something very important there because there's so much learning, there's so much going on, there's so much thought into... Um, improving soils and, and building building up that, that that soil resilience here in Scotland, here in, in, in the British Isles. There's so much of that. There's so much potential to help farmers globally with that. And at the moment, and this is just this is just my sort of opinion as as to as to the way I see it, but at the moment, most of the, the help, if you like, that's being directed at farmers in the less developed parts of the world is coming from agrochemical salesmen as it were yeah you know there's there's a lot of well here's the magic can and it's almost like sort of 50 years ago here where you know here's the bag here's the can and this is the this is the latest thing we ought to be you know maybe your nature friendly farming network ought to be looking to elsewhere as well as helping in 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 scotland well yeah absolutely i mean well, I have to say that actually agronomists, a lot of farming in the UK is still agronomy dependent. Actually, that noise in the background is a, a low loader, uh, sorry, a, a forwarder taking timber off. Ah. The, do you see it's moving yeah, yeah, timber yeah, yeah, off yeah, the yeah, plantation? Yeah, yeah. Because of the, the storm damage, you felled all of that as well. Well, we yeah. had to, yeah. yeah so yeah. they're moving it off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, um, the agronomists are changing. We're speaking to agronomists who are changing their view on what they're advising. Obviously, agronomists working with, employed by corporate agrochemical companies are, of course, pushing agrochemicals as much in the global south as up here in the north. We need to start thinking, they need to start thinking about different ways of doing things that actually, you know, don't really need all these agrochemicals. Um, one thing that's kind of quite an issue, well, quite close to my heart as well, is that, you know, soil organic matter, if we're working with anything less than 4% soil organic matter, that is a degraded soil in the context of British farming, seriously degraded. And as soon as we start increasing soil organic matter, so um, a 1% increase improves the capacity of soil to absorb something like 20,000 gallons of water. And if we start conserving water in our soils, plants function better, biodiversity functions better, um, and also we're cooling the planet. So soil organic matters is absolutely key. And, you know, I'm afraid what we do know is, I mean, soil organic matter depends on, sorry, that's a, that's a dog in the background. <laughs> the soil organic matter depends on functioning soil ecosystem and biodiversity you know as soon as we start applying agrochemicals and glyphosate is one of them you know i know that there are forms of tillage that depend on uh, sort of no till that depend on glyphosate but let's find something else as soon as you start putting glyphosate on you actually suppress the activity of your microbia to function properly and to use organic matter properly so um, but science is 
discovering for new lots of amazing um, dynamics in ecosystems that farmers can use to gain more agency to make the kind of change that we need to see. You, you, you're excited by that. You're I'm still exci- excited. You're still as excited by that as <laughs> when we spoke about these things 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, well, it's, it's, I mean, it gives us as farmers huge opportunity. You know, we farmers as a community is a group. We've always been innovators. We've always innovated. Some of the most incredible engineering has come because of farming. Um, I think our innov- innovative spirit as a community has potentially been oppressed, suppressed, whatever, by subsidies. And I, in the past, you and I, Monty, we've had um, lots of discussions about the impact of subsidies on innovativeness. But also the dependence on agrochemicals. I mean, when farming went chemical and there was this dependency on the same thing coming outside of the farm from some factory and by the by, 50% of glyphosate is made in China. From China, um, sorry, getting excited, knocking, knocking the micro- microphone. <laughs> um, you know, that has suppressed innovation. But the discoveries that we're making now about working with nature give us the opportunities to really start innovating about how we farm. Listen, it is already happening. We've got some brilliant farmers, even here in Berwickshire, who are doing no-till farming um, and experimenting how they can still be productive without tillage. You know, the innovative farmer of the year, UK, Jake Jake Freestone, he's doing some very exciting no-till experiments with companion cropping, cover cropping. So we are already moving in that direction. And um, it's because of science discovering for us ways of working with nature. In a way, it's rediscovering. It's 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 old science. It's where we were before the agrochemical age. Anyway, it's 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 about it's about rotations. It's about just mixed farming and and and, and just being more clever with the resources on the farm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's but it's not going backwards. It, no. you know. And actually, the no-till that don't forget we've been ploughing for a long time. You know, I think the history of farming started with the plough. It's ten thousand years of ploughing. I've been, I've been ten thousand years. <laughs> I've been. <laughs> yeah. So, so no-till is 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 a really important discovery, and yeah, we're re, we're rediscovering a lot. And actually, don't forget, you know, also what's very important in all of this is these new discoveries or these new revelations of what has been and all the rest is actually sharing it. And as farmers are gathering more information and more knowledge, and what's becoming really important is farmer-to-farmer sharing of knowledge, peer-to-peer sharing. So us gaining agency with innovative mindsets, part of that is the real critical farmer-to-farmer work. And actually... I'm involved in um, a CATIF, a Knowledge Transfer Innovation Fund project, um, which is an old Scotland project, um, working with Nourish Scotland, Pasture for Life, NFFN, um, Soil Association, Land Workers Alliance, Propagate, and all a really exciting group of organisations have come together to share this knowledge. The group I'm involved in facilitating is actually biodiversity and profitability here in the Scottish borders, okay. inviting a group of farmers together to, to basically have a conversation about how we address issues of climate and biodiversity on our farms and how we share new research and new approaches. That is gaining such good traction in giving farmers confidence to be innovative, be innovative and to experiment and to see what works on their farms and then cumulatively what will address a, a public good issue of climate and biodiversity improvement. Hopefully this podcast can play a bit of a role in that knowledge transfer role. Yes, you know, that's, I'd like to think we're doing that. But, but going on to that, you're talking about the impacts and the changes, etc., that can be made on farm. Back to what's been happening here at Peelham. Uh, you've been here for, for 30 years. Do you want to give us a little sort of potted history of the timeline of where you've been, how the farm has evolved and how it's evolved, particularly with, with the, those sort of, uh, those thoughts in mind, building biodiversity and combating climate change, etc.? Yeah, sure. So uh, Chris and I came 
into farming as new entrant smallholders. And way back 30 years ago, new entrant smallholders were looked at kind of with a sideways glance as, um, if you like, um, intruders into <laughs> the traditional farming community. But we both worked full time. We got the chance of 20 acres. We always wanted to farm. We met at agricultural college. You know, Chris's first job when we were married was actually um, a general farm worker on a farm in North Northumberland. So we, we always had this dream to farm. So the 20 acres came up actually just over the hill. And the family from whom... We purchased 20 acres, one of the family members, Amanda, our business partner, had the farm next door and invited us to farm with her. So 20 acres became 200 within about two years. Peelham then came on the market and that added another, what, 400 acres. Um, That was within five years. So that's kind of how we started. But from the word go, because of my ecological background, I always, if you like, felt very strongly that we should be farming for biodiversity. We also, Chris and I, had the vision to sell direct, not least because when, from our, as new entrants, we didn't come in with, you know, dad or granddad on our back saying, this is how you do it, this is how we've always done it, you're not going to change, you know, and I've been working on this farm for X years and you're not going to suddenly change the enterprises and ruin that kind of thing which really does happen so we were able to come in with a fresh vision of selling direct and we just felt that the community of which we were new members I mentioned earlier on in this podcast about being suppressed by subsidies and I think there was that kind of oppression suppression of subsidies farming for the brown envelope etc so we started selling direct and then what happened BSC happened, foot and mouth happened, and actually foot and mouth was very good because people realised the relationship between town and country and the contributor farmers to. Well, it was very good from that point of view. It was yeah, very good. Re- re- I know. No, it wasn't very good. It was yeah. No, okay. No. Thank you for qualifying yeah. that. Yeah, because actually we, you know, we lost a whole crop of lambs to in that. Um, what do they call it? The intervention thing. You know, they. Yeah, contiguous colour or something. Yeah. Like that. yeah. So we could smell. Yeah. Uh, you know, from here on yeah. Peelham, you know, the burning the, the pies of yeah. burning carcasses, um, but. Farmers' markets really took off after Foot and Mouth. So we were able to sell more direct. And then um, we decided, for various reasons, because not least we went organic, which we always wanted to do. So we went organic, and which meant that we actually had to build an organic butchery. So we built an organic butchery on the farm in 2008. So procuring directly off the farm through our butchery to supply a local food network. And we became very involved, if you like, in the local food networks how, as well. How, um, how sort of key to, I guess, the business sustainability of the farm has Selling Direct been over the years? Well, it's improved farm turnover. Yeah. And um, I think, if I remember correctly, by about sort of five times since we last started, since we first started, um, on a 680-acre farm as it was then. So it's improved farm turnover. It's given us a lot more resilience and a lot more control of our product. Just just arriving in the yard, there's six or eight cars. To me, that's inferring, and I I don't know, should have done my homework on your website before I came (laughs) along, but to me, that's inferring employment and people here working. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we've got... um, in the butcher, we've got three, which we expanded last year, actually, on the last round of the Food and Processing Marketing Grant. So we've got three full-time butchers, including an apprentice. We've got two people working in a support team with the butchers, packing, labelling. And we've also added value to charcuterie, so I've developed a whole line of charcuterie. So um, we've got a charcuterie manager so who basically came in as a chef but we've trained up and she's been very open and innovative about our charcuterie, so we've added value to charcuterie. So, yeah, we've got about 11 full-time equivalents on the farm. So when I asked you what difference it's made, you know, to my mind, that's amazing. It is. It's not, you know, it's not just in terms of your sustainability or, or financial viability as, as the family farming here. That's amazing. There's, there's, there's people employed to a much greater degree than there would be if you had just said, 
right, we're going to keep um, some stock and arable and, and whatever. You know, mm. you've done that. that's an amazing achievement. Well, I suppose it is because, I mean, there, there was a time when it was just Chris and me and a part-time helper on the farm. So, you know, you know we were doing feeding, doing feeding all the the tractor driving and all the rest um so from that point to where we are now yeah it's huge change um and also what's really nice is that they're all local and youngsters you know we've done some on farm in butchery training with scottish meat training so we've got a scottish meat training person to come and mentor on farm so we can actually have apprentices on the farm um, so yeah, it ha- it, 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 that has that has big change. We're, we're standing here in in a, a farming corner. We don't talk about remoteness on this podcast anymore because we were pulled up by that quite rightly by a chap, a previous guest from the Western Isles, and he said, "We're not remote. You know, we've got our own network of people here. We're not remote. What am I remote from?" <laughs> so I'm not going to use the word remote, but I'm just going to say we're we're in a sort of farish flung farming corner of Berwickshire here and there's not a great centre of population but nor is it a great centre of industry you know jobs there's so to do that I think is a great achievement to to, to have 11 jobs here is brilliant well it's, I mean you wouldn't expect it on a 680 acre no. farm you certainly farming wouldn't support that no. so actually diversifying into direct selling and building our butchery has increased and also going organic incidentally has increased the capacity of the farm to employ people um, so yeah we've got employees who've come from the local towns from Chernside, Eyemouth, Paxton um, and our head butcher actually is a local farmer's son who came to us straight from school and has trained up to be um, you know we trained him as an apprentice and he's absolutely brilliant so we've got, we've got a really good team. I mean, the, employing people presents us challenges. And I'm not saying it's been easy. It hasn't. It's been extremely difficult. I mean, you know, my background is in science, not in human resources. So I've had to learn on the foot and I've made some horrendous mistakes. Um, but occasionally I get it right. Are we, are we allowed? <laughs> I wonder if it's appropriate here to give a wee plug for our sponsors in this episode, Gillespie McAndrew, because... I'm guessing, you know, just as a growing business, advice from, from experts like that has been invaluable. It has. They are solicitors, actually. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> why I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm teeing that one up. <laughs> Producer Dave, I don't know if he likes me teeing up the... But, you know, give the sponsors some credit. They're not just sponsoring here for this episode, but they've actually been invaluable to your business. Yes, they yeah. have. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And actually, um, invaluable... In, in terms of the, the history of our business, in restructuring and succession. So my son Angus came back onto the farm in 2015, having done his stint abroad as a fishing guide in New Zealand and Russia. And he came into the business as a manager and then into the business as a partner. But obviously, because of every farm's involvement with their bank, Succession actually has to involve a complete restructuring and repositioning of the farm asset with the bank. And the solicitors were, gave us the advice that we needed and actually excellent. So, yes, yeah, so the, the, we've gone through the succession, but we could never have done it without the kind of expert legal advice of a firm like Gillespie McAndrew. <laughs> Um, Sorry, they might they might appreciate this because normally they just get a credit at the beginning and an end as sponsor. <laughs> but that was lovely to hear a bit of a bit of that. Um, I'm j- just going back though. We were talking about employment. We're talking about bringing people on. It's interesting because we're talking also about you know how we can improve biodiversity. We can improve soils. We can be more resilient to climate change. In fact, we can possibly mitigate the impacts of climate change. Even doing all that, we can still meet this challenge of of feeding 8 billion people. I like the fact that this farm is feeding people, employing people. It's like, you know, it's it's just an an all-round win for the local community. Absolutely. And it's scalable. It's doable. It's not just because we're unique. We're not. You know, we're pretty bog-standard Scottish Borders farm. You know, we've just developed, if you like, the assets that this farm and this location have presented us. 
But I have to say, we could never have got to where we are without support, government support. So the building of the butchery was, God bless Europe, EU funded, but obviously Scottish government match funded. And we had to put 40%, it was 40% grant, so we had to fund 60%. Um, but also all the um, habitat improvements, all the infrastructure, we've replanted. The, the, when we came to the farm, there were no fences or hedgerows. We had to do all of that. And that's why it's taken so long. Uh, we could never, ever have done it without government support. And I, I think I made a, a mention earlier on about the issues of climate and biodiversity. They are public goods. So there's a growing expectation that farming can deliver on what they call ecosystem services. Well, we can deliver, but we need the support. We need government support to help us. So we need government support, for example, in terms of of the food network. I mean, there's a real push to the Good Food Nation Act uh, for uh, the strengthening of locally resilient food networks. Well, we can't do it unless we have local abattoirs, unless we have local bottling plants, unless we have local bean dehusking plants. So in order to enable farming to deliver what actually is a public good, you know, by the, you know, it's a public good, we need government support. Denise, you just reminded me of something on a policy chat, if you want to call it that. I think the last time that we would have spoken on any sort of policy issue way back when would have been on local abattoirs. And the situation if anything, has just got worse. Oh, it has got worse. It's awful. And, you know, we're seeing abattoirs closing and, um, you know, it means that there's no prospect whatsoever of local farms trying to develop a local food network. Um, you know, at the moment, what we do, for example, is our livestock go every week. So we procure off the farm every week because of our butchery. Um, we share a lorry with um, a couple of other farms and also the lorry picks up from St Boswell's March to go down to Durham to to Jewett's and Spennymore. A farm trying to start what we've spent 30 years developing could never ever do what we're doing now because there isn't a local abattoir because actually you know we're kind of embedded into a system that's working for us but to actually develop it from new would be next to impossible. Just just to to fill listeners in on that, so about, goodness, 2007, 8, 9, something like that, I was trying to get off the ground directly selling some lambs, hence discussions with Denise about abattoirs, etc. And at that time, the abattoir in Gala Shields, which is relatively local to me, was still functioning. And I was able to take lambs there, and it was brilliant because... I dropped them off there. The next I saw them, they were nicely butchered in the local butchers, ready to pick up the box and deliver to a customer. Couldn't have been simpler. And a great way to add value to my produce and a great way to try and grow my business as it was in its infancy at the time. And about a year, two years down the line, the Gala Abattoir closed. I tried to, if you will like, access abattoir services elsewhere. And it just it just wasn't viable on the scale I was... I was working on and it hit home what you said there because I gave up I couldn't then sell direct so my business as it were became much less viable I had to just go back to being take the lambs to market type job and I think a lot of people have been suppressed like that because there isn't a local chain it's all very well going into the local pub and it's beef from wherever on the menu lamb from wherever on the menu but that animal that what's on your plate has had to go for miles to be source an abattoir to then come back to be butchered to then end up on the plate so sad that yeah it's so sad it's incapacitating you know if if as if as an industry and as individual businesses within an industry i.e the farming industry we are expected to improve our capacity to deliver we simply can't if we've got this really stretched, broken infrastructure. So we absolutely have got to, got to, got to get local abattoirs and local food infrastructure to improve capacity. But coming back to the main thread, main purpose of this pod, you know, that's just about food miles. And the food miles 
is climate change. It's food miles is carbon. Food miles is diesel. Food miles is, you know, it's just not sustainable. And if we're going to be sustainable, if we're going to be improving the soils and and improving the biodiversity and improving our resilience to climate change, etc., we also have to look at what we can access locally and where we, you know, why are we putting things on a truck to go for miles when we don't need to? Absolutely. You know, it is about localising uh, our food system and uh, all, you know, all the government policies are, and, and it goes for all the devolved nations, are about localising food so that farming can actually have capacity to address these issues. And you're absolutely spot on. I mean, it's absolutely crazy trying to work on the scale and the very disintegrated sort of food networks that currently exist, which are, you know, dominated by the huge players, which are huge contributors to climate change. So, I mean, it's it's a win-win, uh, but we definitely have got to get policy support and funding support to make it happen. There's only so much we can do on farms. Absolutely. We need we need we need the ups we need the up chain support. We need the up chain services to be there. And then suddenly, what you were saying about the sustainability of your produce, your beef from this farm, and the low carbon footprint and the, 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 the impacts of the cow pats, you know, that story could be tenfold increased if the produce was able to be more localised. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, an amazing, it's incredibly optimistic and there are huge benefits and there's, you know, just unleashing the capacity for local businesses and farm businesses and farmers to be innovative depends on actually having the infrastructure there. And actually, I can just also make a wee point that the system that we've got here, which again is so doable and scalable, we are achieving 500 kilos with our beef within 16 months on grass only. So this system is productive and what's so great is that we know our carcasses because they come into our butchery and we can see them. Um, and incidentally, you know, we, you know, we've increased the capacity of our butchery to cope with what we're putting through it. But there needs to be more like us. This isn't about competition. I would welcome more facilities doing what we do. And that brings in the whole issue of collaboration, cooperation, collaboration between industry and policymakers to make this work is absolutely key to getting where we need to get i i i and as as the on-farm podcast we totally you know we buy into all that we talk collaboration we do work with saos we, we talk about these things all the time and 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 we're we're hopefully again this pod is a is a driver of that because you know people listening begin to to explore the ideas um i just wonder though if ultimately it comes down to what the consumer is a prepared and b can afford to pay because it's all very well talking government support but government support is getting pulled in every direction at the moment and at the end of the day unless we can unless we can take a fair pound and a, and a profitable pound from the from the consumer it doesn't matter how much government support there is yeah i mean that's that's a fair point and you know we are all of us dictated to an extent by the market um, but it's a wee bit of a catch-22. Um, you know, we've got multiple retailers, very, very powerful in the marketplace, um, running loss leaders all the time, cutting each other's costs all the time. Um, you know, so it's it's the most ridiculously damaging game between the retailers. But, you know, what we're finding is... Farmers' markets are strong. People are coming to us and buying from us. And it's not just, you know, the, the um, white-collar academic, uh, you know, high earner. It's right across the board. So we're getting people who are just buying the only meat they eat in the month will be from us or from yeah. other similar suppliers. Yeah. Yeah. So, they're, you know, this whole thing of, you know, eat less but better, we're for that you know, eat less, waste less, even if it's eating less meat, but eat better. And we are definitely, um, if you like, supplying that desire in the market, which actually, you know, the supermarkets just aren't. But I kind of get a sense that maybe they're coming around to this way of thinking. 
which can only be a good thing. I think the egg job might have to push them into thinking about a bit more about what they pay and how they work with the suppliers. I think that's it's it's probably beyond our chat today, but you know the egg um, suppliers, egg producers, egg farmers, we should say are being absolutely ripped off by supermarkets who are just using every excuse under the sun to not pay them what they need. It's disgraceful. It is just so disgraceful. I mean, there should be some kind of, you know, legal constraint to stop that happening because, you know, not only is it destroying businesses, it's not giving the consumer what they want. And, you know, for supermarkets to say, oh, this is what the customer wants, it's a load of rubbish. Interestingly, that's that's what I'm driving at. You're saying, you know, supermarkets coming around to this way of thinking, but eggs are actually quite a good example of that because supermarkets have driven, you know, the nicely displayed free range and the, you know, the, the barn eggs and whatever with a bit more pizzazz on their shelves to market those ranges and, and they've they've told, by doing so, they've pretty much told consumers that that's the choice they should make. And then suddenly, when it all goes a bit wrong and is going to cost the supermarket too much money to buy those or any eggs, they're importing them from Italy and putting Ah. them on the shelf. Well, I suppose at the end of the day, it tells the lie, doesn't it? That actually it's all about, you know, bottom line. And um, it's got nothing to do with the consumer. It's actually got a lot more to do with their their shareholders. You know, all of that needs to be re-looked at. But going back to... COP27 and where we are now and climate and biodiversity, actually the whole thing, thing about climate, it's, it is the ultimate leveller. You know, we're all in the same boat, even, you know, supermarket CEOs we're all on the same planet. Yeah. Climate change is telling all of us actually we're all very, very vulnerable. Even, you know, the CEO of any of the big multiples. Yeah. And yeah. we all have got to buckle down and make it work because it's, you know, CEOs of supermarkets will have children and grandchildren, like I have children and grandchildren, and we kind of all want to survive comfortably, and we can. The capacity to survive on this planet, cry out loud, we've been doing it for thousands of years. Let's carry on doing it for thousands of years. But not because supermarkets are just chasing the bottom line for the sake of their shareholders. Their shareholders have children too. <laughs> I love that. I love, I love that positivity. Sometimes when you look at the destruction around here from Storm Arwen or whatever, you know, and, and you get into climate change discussion, it could be, we could end this podcast on a, on a gloomy note, but I love that positivity. We're going to come through this and we're going to, we've got some answers here on farms and we've got the, the soil that we can work with and the animals that we can use and work alongside yeah. have, have the answers. Yeah, absolutely. We've got yeah. the answer beneath our feet. Yeah. But we've got to do it together. We've got to do as a partnership, the collaboration, industry, policy, government, farmers, businesses. We can do it. And some of us are doing it. We need to do a lot more. We need to do a lot more here at Pelham. And working with other farmers, we know we can do it together. It's very, very possible. Even, even just the little touches you're bringing in here at Pelham, the, the quarter horse rather than the quad bike. <laughs> yes. It's just... <laughs> It's fun as well, isn't it? I know, it's really good fun. And, you know, when Angus, my son, goes out uh, checking cattle, instead of coming back cross and, you know, on a bumpy old Can-Am singing of fuel, he comes back actually having a really lovely ride. <laughs> he's done his job. He's in a much better frame of mind. The horses enjoyed it. And it's much more sustainable. So the prospect of another higher purchase agreement to cover another £20,000 for another Can-Am. Other buggies and quads are available. Let's there not, are let's other, not, yeah, sorry, let's not beat Can- No, no, that's fine. We're not the BBC, but let's <laughs> not beat Can-Am up too much, you know. No, I've, I I've, I've a good friend I that mean... sells John Deere Gators and they're probably just as bad. OK, just, just any, any zooped-up four-wheel drive golf buggy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Angus, my son, a court horse came to the conversation. He started having conversation with quarter horse schools and breeders down south and hey presto the possibility of a quarter horse instead of a sorry a four-wheel drive zooped up buggy that was going to cost 20 grand became a possibility so um got the quarter horse and it's working a dream as long as she doesn't go lame (laughs) and also there's a possibility of an equitourism 
diversification project. Uh, right. watch this so watch for, this space. Watch this space for ranchers are us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and lots of lots of horse poo and cow poo. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so Denise, it's been great to catch up. COP27 is just completing as this pod goes live. From this corner of Berwickshire, from, from Scottish agriculture, what, what are your messages? Give us three key messages for anyone interested in these issues of COP27. OK, well, if I can <coughs> frame that a wee bit. So last Saturday was Agriculture Day at COP27 okay. and um, our respective NFUs... Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, they came together what they wanted to see. And I think what they were all, what they came across in common was actually green energy, green tech. So my immediate response to that was, yes, farmers can do green tech, but actually all of that depends on an outside factor or force or provider and actually we can do an awful lot on our farms with what is beneath our feet so lesson number one is we've actually got the answers and we've got agency of the answers here on our farms and most of it is beneath our feet so we can do we can be up to a point make decisions on our own without depending on green tech coming in, or dare I say it, but it's perhaps a discussion for another time, genetic engineering coming in, which yeah. depends on agrochemical companies off the farm and, you know, way off somewhere else. Beneath our feet being the plants and the soil we're working yeah, beneath with. Beneath our feet, yeah. and also recognising what the free assets are. We've got sunshine, we've got water, we've got soil. Let's use those to their full capacity and reach what's called the maximum sustainable output on our farms and work with nature. So nature has given us the answers for millennia and it will continue to give us the answers. But um, we need to work with nature to make sure the answers go our way. So beneath our feet, work with nature and also having confidence in our own abilities to be innovative. So changing to an innovative mindset to explore the possibilities that are on our farms staring us in the face. Work together, learn together. Work together, learn together. Absolutely. Couldn't put it better myself. Denise, thank you very much. You're welcome. Great job. <laughs> thank you very much to our guest there, Denise Walton, here at Peelham Farm in Berwickshire. It's been great. It's actually been very good to be out on farm again. We love recording in situ on site. It's great. I hope the listeners appreciate that. You can hear the sounds of the farm behind us. Massive thanks to our uh, sponsors of this pod, Gillespie McAndrew. Thank you also to our listeners for your support. And I must just ask, you heard Denise say um, throughout our chat there about knowledge transfer and and sharing of ideas and and inspiring others. Please do, please do share this podcast. Um, Pass it on to anyone who would like to listen. Share it on social media. All of that helps us and it helps us with that um, knowledge exchange, if you want to call it that. So that's it. I've been Monty and that's it from me and bye for now.